You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. So let's head into Proverbs 4. If you have scripture in front of you, if your Bible, uh, your phone, we'll have it on the screen, and we'll read this together. It's important we get our eyes on scripture together. This is Solomon. He says, hear, O sons, a father's instructions, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good prospects, precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Let's pray. Jesus, we come under your word today. We come under your truth. We believe it is all sufficient, satisfying for our lives. And so, Lord, will you do your work in our hearts through your spirit? Will you bring conviction where it needs it? Will you bring gladness and joy at the declarations of your word? And so, Father, we just submit to you today. We love you, and we praise you, and we pray all of this through the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So King Solomon writes here in Proverbs chapter 4, uh, he writes as a father, instructing his children on the importance of wisdom, on acquiring it and devoting oneself to it, but these aren't just his words, they echo the words that were once spoken to him by his father, King David. Solomon is considered to be the wisest man who has ever lived, past, present, and future. That's a pretty tremendous title to have said about yourself, probably better than the best charades player in the world. Imagine going to a get-together and somebody asking, tell me a little bit more about yourself, and you can say, well, I'm the wisest person you'll ever meet. A pretty cool thing. King David, his father, is the only person compelled as a a man after God's own heart. And so we have the wisest man who has ever lived and ever will live, and the only man in Scripture that's compelled to be a man after God's own heart, together compelling to us that our pursuit of wisdom, of insight, should be the prevailing posture of our lives, that we should champion wisdom, because in the confines of true wisdom, we find honor, strength, and beauty. You know, Solomon penned these words almost 2,700 years ago, in and around 700 BC, but they remain flourishing truths for us. Yet today, can we say that we esteem wisdom? Can we say that we know how to find it, how to pursue it, even how to prize it? Or has the pace and the complexity of modern life 
corrupted us to a place where we no longer know what it means to be wise, where we no longer know how to pursue wisdom. Might the way that we live today diminish the importance of wisdom in one's life? So let's take some time today to expand on that thought. You know, two of our founding fathers, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, they wrote 380 letters to one another from the year 1777 all the way to their death in 1826. 380 letters. And during that time period, there are 12 years of silence in which neither of them picked up a pen to correspond with the other. They were estranged. Adams and Jefferson were political rivals with deep contempt towards the other. Jefferson was a Democrat-Republican. It's hard to imagine those two phrases resting aside along next to each other, but that happened. Jefferson was a Democrat-Republican. It was actually the, the party of power for three presidents. Adams was a Federalist, so it means that Jefferson, he fought for local state government, and Adams compelled a stronger federal central government. And so knowing that, it's obvious that these men had some conflict. Adams thought Jefferson to be pretentious. He did not like the credit that he got for the Revolutionary War because Jefferson spent most of his time in France in luxury, never really in the conflict of the struggle of the colonies. And Jefferson thought Adams to be pompous and elitist. Yet during the last quarter of their lives, through the encouragement of friends, they set aside time to rekindle their friendship, to once come to know each other in a way that they had known each other before they became foes. And so in 1812, <clears throat> July of 1812, Adams wrote this. He said, I wish you, sir, many happy new years, and that you may enter the next and many succeeding years with an animating prospect for the public as those at present before us. I, sir, I, sir, with long and sincere. They spoke differently than we did back today. And he ends it by saying, esteemed your friend and servant, John Adams. And Jefferson responds in his correspondence, a portion he says, Crippled wrist and fingers make writing slow and laborious, but while writing you, I lose sense of these things in the recollection of ancient times when youth and health made happiness out of everything. And then Adams, in a response, said, you and I ought not to die before we explained ourselves to each other. Adam and Jefferson's affections for each other rekindled. And they actually died on the very same day, July 4th, 1826, just a matter of hours apart. And it's said that on his deathbed, John Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson lives. And so these two great political rivals, by the humility of time, set aside their differences and in good wisdom saw each other for far more than what divided them. And I think that it begs the question, could this happen today? Could great political rivals with contempt for one another lay down their differences and become reacquainted with the other's humanity? Could AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene someday pin with such admiration for the other as Adams and Jefferson did? Could we someday could we see 
good amongst those that we disagree with? And of course, my answer is always going to be yes, because I believe that God's spirit rules and reigns on this earth and has the ability to change the heart of every man, woman, and child. But I'm also doubtful that that sort of humility and self-awareness can thrive in this day and age. You know, when you think about Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and the environment in which they lived, it was a very agrarian society. The population of that day mostly lived in rural areas. 90% of the country's population lived on farms, farms that produced enough produce for three to seven people. Today, do you know what percentage of our population lives on farms? Anybody want to take a guess? 1%. 1% of people live on farms today. Do you know how long it took for a letter to travel the 100 miles between Philadelphia and New York City? On average, 14 days. 14 days. Today, in a matter of milliseconds, we can communicate with anyone on virtually any spot on the globe. In 1800, there were 200 newspapers in existence. 200. It was the only medium that shared information outside of word of mouth, which meant you were lucky in that day if you read one newspaper a week. Today, we consume information at a slightly different level. In 2011, there was a survey, a survey that conveyed that today in this environment, the average human reads the equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of information in one day. 174 newspapers worth of information in one day. I had to look it up twice. Many of you grew up in homes where your dad came home and he got home from work and he sat in the chair and the first thing he did was grab the paper and he read through it. He read one paper. Today we consume essentially 174. One of the things that I love about Jefferson and Adams is that they ponder if some of the people that they once knew were alive in their letters. In fact, Jefferson writes to Adams and says, do you know how many people are alive that signed the Declaration of Pendants? He, he literally asked John Adams if he knew. Today, we know everything about everything and everyone. Today, there are literally millions of people speaking of everything that we could ever imagine, and all of them have lots to say about it. Now, I'm not here to esteem to you that 1800 was the golden age of our civilization. I know that many of you have dreams of being a little house on the prairie out there to be Charles and Laura one day, but 1800 had significant issues in its day. First of all, people being sold and, sell, or sold and bought as things. But I think the understanding that we hear of what that environment looked like brings to us a startling realization of just how quick everything has gotten. Think of the time that Jefferson and Adams had between writing letters. The amount of time that it took to travel in that day for that letter to get to that person, the amount of time that they had to contemplate and meditate and pray and think about it. Think about the number of people who would be speaking in their ears their opinions in that day. Hardly any. Think about the drafts 
that they would have written for that letter. Quill and ink. Like, and if you mess up, you start again. Like today, you get all of my bad grammar if I write you a note. And that day, they had to take their time. And the reason why I say all of this is because I think that if Jefferson and Adams were alive today, that they would never have written those letters. They would have never laid down their beef with one another. They would have thousands of pundits speaking in every one of their ears about how bad the other person was. And they would have consumed thousands of pages of information on just how stupid the other was. And because they could know everything about everything, correspondence with one another seems absolutely unnecessary. And you might say, well, how does this relate to wisdom? <laughs> it has everything to do with wisdom. Because there's a slowness that is necessary, necessary for the cause of wisdom that seems to be unwanted today. There is a margin of silence and quietness that is necessary for wisdom where one has to reflect on whether or not, whether what I said or what I believe is true, right, is it hurtful? There's a humble introspection that only time can bring that is necessary in the cause of wisdom where I have to consider whether or not my personal motivations play a part in what I want and want to hear. There is a personal introspection that must be in ourselves where we consider our own wrongness and folly. James, the brother of Jesus, writes at the beginning of his letter a profound truth. In James chapter 1, he writes this, Know this, my beloved, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. James writes to the first century. This is 700 years, 1,700 years before Thomas Jefferson and John Adams hit the scene. And he says to that church, slow down. Listen. Be slow to anger. Receive with meekness the implanted word of God. He's writing to a church in that day without internet, without phone, without television, without fidget spinners, without cars or radios, or even indoor plumbing. And he says, slow down. You're going too fast. You're reacting. What is for your good is to submit yourself to the wisdom that comes from the implanted word of God it is a wisdom that will serve you well in all of your circumstances in life, but also possesses the ability to save your soul. And so James speaks of a wisdom in which we have received, that we received in meekness. Not a wisdom that we possess, not a wisdom that we earn, but one that comes from the outside that changes our hearts from outside in, that we receive in meekness. You know, when we had a series on the fruit of the Spirit, we talked about the word meekness, this Greek word called preotes, and it compelled this idea of a dog being walked on a leash. I don't know if you remember that, but an idea that a dog 
with a slack on the leash. That is the idea of meekness, one who delights in walking next to their master, who trusts that they know what is best for them and ultimately knows better than they do. That is the posture that James is referring to when he says that we should receive and listen to God's implanted word. We should esteem it because not only is it good and right for our living, but it is also pleasing to God. There is an active submission, a needed surrender to be teachable, humble, to be one that is wise according to God. Solomon would write in Proverbs in chapter 9 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. A.W. Tozer says that the wisest person in the world is the one who knows the most about God. Yet, is it not hard for us today to slow down long enough to come before God with reverence, which is what the word fear compels to us in Proverbs 9, this holy reverence to God and says, Lord, does this please you? Lord, does this promote your glory? Does this promote your joy and flourishing on the earth? We move so fast today, so fast in our communication and pace that most of it, our opinions and our insights are the results of reaction. Reaction to what's going on in front of us. Reaction to what other people are saying. And when we react from something, what do we normally lead with? Emotion and feelings. Emotions are not wisdom. Feelings are not wisdom. Emotions are fire alarms that tell you that something is happening in your heart. They're telling you that a truth has been affected in your life. The reason you're getting angry is something deeper. It is wisdom that asks, why do I feel this way? And why did that hurt? It is wisdom that slows down the process and says, I need to think on this. I need to pray on this. Yet today, it almost has become impractical and impossible to practice that. It is if we are a creation who is living outside of its own limits. We live in a world that doesn't seek to be wise. We simply live in a world that seeks to be right. Culture strives to know more than the other, to, not, to know something that the other doesn't so we can cause them to stutter in that moment and we can say, I got you, you're a fool. Everything is emotion. And we have thousands of pundits that are speaking in all of our ears, confirming to us what we believe and emboldening us to speak out. But the wisdom of Scripture says slow down to receive his implanted word with meekness in our hearts. In James' day, there was no written text that we know like we have today. There were maybe a few letters, but nothing of great worth. Today, not only do we have the implanted word that comes through the Holy Spirit of God, but we have the living word, the inspired word of God, the Bible. All scripture, it says, is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and instructing in the way of righteousness. 
I mean, can you consider this for a second? The Bible was written over a period of 2,000 years by 40 different authors on three different continents, having three different languages, shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, a priest, all wrote portions of scripture. They had different purposes for writing, whether it be history or giving spiritual or moral instructions or even pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from palaces and prisons, from wilderness and in exile, all writing history and laws and poetry and prophecy and proverbs. And in that process, they laid bare their emotions, expressed their anger and frustration and joy and love to the Lord. Yet despite the marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. It never contradicts itself, and it always has the common theme in mind. It is unparalleled in history for its unity. And so what does it say about a God who is able to bind up all of that wisdom from all of those places and all of those people? It tells us that his wisdom prevails, that it is the prevailing wisdom of the world, that it is authoritative and real. It tells us that those who seek it will find it. Those who fear him, who humbly stand in reverence of him, will come to the same conclusions of life and purpose. That God has a way of imparting his wisdom to those who seek it. And that truth is still alive today. That wisdom is still found in this world. It has shaped the lives of people in Iran, in Spain. It has caused murderers to repent. It has caused soccer moms to pray. It has changed the life of rulers and tyrants and truck drivers and peasants and kings. It has changed countless lives around the world in every season and every time span. God's prevailing wisdom has survived and outlasted dictators and tyrants. It has survived the corruption and the abuse of prideful men who sought to distort it for their own pleasure. God's wisdom has stood the course of time. It has survived to this day and is here, alive and active for all who want to pursue it. But we have to slow down. To be seasoned to be unhurried and treasure it. But it's going to start with us realizing that we don't know what it means to be unhurried. That we may not know what it means to fear God more than our own reputation and our own rightness. To not use God's scripture as a book of quotations that secure our own victory and esteem my own rightness to not approach the scriptures with fear of what others are saying at the hope that I might contradict them, to see its wisdom not for the good of others, but as the ultimate source of my flourishing and salvation. J.I. Packard, a theologian, once said that confidence that one's impressions are God-given is no guarantee that this is really so. Even when they persist and grow stronger through long seasons of prayer, Bible-based wisdom 
must be judged. Our conviction, our wisdom, our emotions, our inclinations must come before the whole counsel of God in his word, not simply the parts of scripture that we want to elevate for our own purposes. If we think that we can alter this culture through force of opinion and by the conviction of our own rightness, we have misinterpreted the scriptures to believe that we can change the hearts of men and women. Only God can change the hearts of men and women. He is the only one that can take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. The change that we desire in this world, Christian, will only come when we attach ourselves to the source so alive and abiding in the vine of Christ that through seasoning and pruning and cultivating that God grows in us a fruit that is desirable to a decaying and fallen world. We are better served dying to ourselves, our desires, our wisdom, our emotions for the sake of Christ than fighting to preserve or change an earthly kingdom James writes this later in his letter in James chapter 3. He asks a question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? It's a little bit of a sarcastic question because James knows that the people that he's writing to are steaming themselves to be wiser than they ought to. But I think it's a question that we must consider. Am I wise? Do I believe that I'm wise? But listen to the sort of wisdom that James esteems as the posture of a believer. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom of above is first pure, then peaceable, gentile, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so here's my concern, friends. We are living in a day and age in which the loudest voice, the hottest take, it's the microphone. We live in a society where the loudest person gets the cookie. People often full of jealousy and self-ambition who boast about false things to get the most attention, and we are quick to follow. We are quick to follow. As Christians in this day, we are drawn towards people who have an unwavering ability to say the things that we could never say. And then we say, I could never say that. But I'm so thankful that they could. I'm so thankful that they have the courage to say that. Have we forgotten what it means to be peaceful, Gentile, and open to reason? Might we think that these sentiments were left for another time? Those were meant for another age. Today we have to fight. That isn't scripture. As Christians, we are far too easily swayed and leaned into the opinions and pundits of others then we naturally want to seek and abide in God's wisdom through meekness. As Christians, we would rather expose people than to make peace. 
We are more concerned about being right in the eyes of the world than we are about being wise in the eyes of God. Today, we seem to rather grumble and gossip and complain about the state of how things are than pursue the promise of a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so all of this to say, are we losing our ability to know what is right and true and wise in this world? How do we acquire wisdom and truth? I believe that as we move forward, it will be vital for the church to repent and redirect our efforts to esteem Christ as the most sufficient thing in our lives and nothing else. And so starting next Wednesday, we're going to begin 10 weeks of discussion of what it looks like to find truth and wisdom in a post-truth world. We will discuss the problems that we face in the acquisition of truth and wisdom, but also the fundamental means and filters that we must consider in our pursuit. And so listen, friends, as Christians, we have every ability to rest in the sovereignty and the goodness of God who's already secured the ultimate victory for us, who through Christ has met our greatest need in our forgiveness of sin. And by his adoption as beloved sons and daughters, we can believe that everything that we need in this world to flourish and endure is found in him. And because of that, we can walk in humility and truth, to have grace and truth, not seeking to be right, but living to be wise. And so I understand that all of you will join us for that class. And so if you are not able to, I, I would recommend to you, and I have that book outside in the information desk, a book called The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken, I think it fosters a good discussion in our lives. And so let's end our time here with a little bit of prayer. Oh, Father, I just come before you today and uh, I just declare that you are sovereign and you are good. And that, Lord, all of my fears tend to vanish when my eyes are on you. And so, Lord, will you help us to slow down Will you help us to rest? Will you help us to be wise? We don't want to just know, Lord. We don't want to know what's right. We don't want to have knowledge in our brains. We want to be seasoned by your wisdom, a wisdom that you have brought to us in this day and age that has survived the history of the world, that has changed millions of lives in this world, Lord. And Lord, will you make it the ultimate hope of our life, the ultimate pursuit of our life, to live by and for your wisdom. So we love you, Jesus, and we thank you for the grace that enables us to stand up today, no longer condemned, but through it, we have adoption as sons and daughters of you, and we praise you for that today. Amen.